On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about social media and a bit of a conundrum that some of the social media companies are having. That if you put something online that is against or questioning vaccines, you may be banned. But if you are a member of the Taliban, you are still allowed to proceed. Huh? Huh? What is going on? Well, we're going to talk about that one. And also... We're going to go a little throwback here. I saw a story the other day about a company that I used to frequent when I was a younger man that maybe you did too. Probably you did too. Consumers Distributing. 25 years ago this week, it faded into oblivion. We're going to talk about it and other companies that were heavily used by many of us once upon a time that are now kaput and why they didn't make it. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You've probably heard in recent days uh, of some cases in which Twitter, Facebook, some other social media platforms have temporarily banned particular users from using their platforms for posting what has been called anti-vaccine myths or, or, or other things that are... You know, Donald Trump obviously banned from Twitter forever, not just temporarily for things that he said. Uh, but especially, you know, lately, these anti-vaccine things, they're harmful, they say, that they, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't fit with what we're all about. Well, the point seems to be that some of these social media giants have taken the position, we are not going to allow people to spread harmful information on our service. However, it has come... Through a lot of people pointing this out, the, the, the seeming irony of this, that a number of these same organizations have long allowed the Taliban to post on their sites. And even today, it continues, even with what's happening in Afghanistan, the Taliban is still being allowed to post things on Twitter and other things. It does seem like it's a little bit, hmm, don't quite get it. I want to bring in Alan Mendelson. He is a lawyer. He specializes in internet and me online issues. Uh, we love having him on here. Alan, how are you tonight? How are you? I am excellent. Um, I saw this. I, I It never dawned on me that the Taliban was social media savvy, but apparently they are. And some of their spokespeople have sites of accounts with hundreds of thousands of, of subscribers. It seems to me anyway, a little awkward if you're going to take a position that some things should not be allowed because they're harmful to then allow some other things that clearly seem very harmful to continue on. Uh, I, I agree, Scott. This is one of the most difficult questions. Uh, you know, you and I have thought, done a lot of interviews together, and this is one of the most difficult issues and questions you've ever asked me to come to speak on. And in all honesty, it's it's really a mixed bag that sort of, brings together, you know, Twitter and all of the other, you know, social media networks as private entities in, you know, in, in conflict with the role of these entities as, you know, the public square, the modern public square. And does every government, does every individual have the right to speak in that public square? Um, and with respect to how the Taliban, which for better or for worse, obviously for worse, but, you know, is now a government of a country 
um, do, should they be able to get whatever message they want out there? Uh, these are very, very difficult questions to answer. You know, and, and it's funny because um, contrarian opinions from the country that is supposed to be all about free speech now aren't allowed to be on these sites, it seems, but opinions from the country that abhors freedom are allowed to be on here. It's like it's like an intentional troll job by some of these places <laughs> to say, we'll show you. Um, but but there's a real irony in this. There's a real irony that some things are being seen as harmful and other things, as I say, that are harmful are not or are not being seen that way. And again, I'll, I'll go to where you started with this one. What is private companies are permitted different rules when it comes to freedom of expression than the public square is. If I own a company, I can set standards for my employees and say, you're not allowed to wear this to work or something else. Whereas you're supposed to have more freedoms in the public. But in 2021, is Twitter and is Facebook, It's even though it's a private company, is it not almost the public square? Well, yeah, it, absolutely. You know, and, and but, you know, the, the key word in there that, you know, you said, Scott, it, it's almost. And, and the, the laws, the way they are currently written, um, allow for private companies to make their own rules. And Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, make their own rules. And, you know, I, I, I know the terms of service and their, you know, acceptable use policies and rules of procedures practically like the back of my hand. And they all are very specific. If you do X, Y, and Z, uh, promote violence, promote hatred, promote misinformation as it relates to vaccines, although it doesn't say that specifically, but enough rules in there, you know, um, allow for that interpretation, we can suspend or ban your account from the service. And they have absolutely the right to do that. And, you know, in, in, in some weird roundabout legal way, um, it's in their best interest to do that because if they are, if they, if they were to allow full 100% say what you want on Twitter or Facebook and someone is harmed as a result from that, well, that someone is going to sue the platform that allowed that to be said. And so there is a vested interest in the media companies and the social media companies to remove the content that may cause harm to individuals to prevent them from being involved in some sort of lawsuit. So, you know, that that's that's the difference between Twitter and the government. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Before the break, you were saying, you know, you have studied and you know very well the agreements and the rules and everything else. And one of the things they say they don't allow is hate. And then it was pointed out last summer, almost a year ago to the day, there was a spokesperson for Twitter who was speaking to the Knesset in Jerusalem, in Israel. And they asked her, well, how then are is the Ayatollah allowed to call Israel a deadly cancerous growth and call for its genocide on Twitter. And the answer was a long convoluted explanation that nobody could quite understand. The point is, it seems the rules may be existing, but they are applied at the whim of somebody, depending if they seem to think that those rules are good or bad or otherwise, or how they interpret it. It just doesn't seem clear. 
Well, of course, and and, and that is the problem, and that's the problem that uh, critics of this system, for lack of a better word, have identified for several years now, in, in that the rules are arbitrarily, in you know, the appearance is that the rules are arbitrarily enforced by the social media companies based on whatever internal decisions they choose to make. Um, and that is certainly problematic. They are very rarely, in terms of their um, policies with respect to what content is allowed and what content is not allowed, taken to court over that. And so as a result, they pretty much have free reign to decide what is, you know, in, in your example, hate speech and what isn't, um, or what generally is violating their terms of service and what isn't. And that's the nature of a private service. And I, I, I hate to keep repeating myself, but these are private companies that get to decide their own rules and procedures. And, and that's just the way it is right now. The reason we're talking about this, because Twitter can do what it wants, really. I mean, ultimately, as you say, they can. But the federal liberals, if they're reelected before they dismissed parliament, one of the things they were trying to bring in was a bill to ban online hate and to, and to have bureaucratic groups that would somehow be able to look at this. Well, the point is, if we already have an example that when it comes to sorting out what is hate, what isn't hate, what's in the rules, what isn't in the rules, this to me shows how absolutely convoluted and impossible it's going to be for a government entity to try and do the same thing that these social media platforms are trying to do. No question. Any, any government that chooses to, you know, uh, or chooses to attempt to decide what is, you know, what types of speech violate, you know, hate speech or not is asking for a whole lot of trouble. But, I mean, the fact is, you know, we, I need to point out from my lawyer, put my lawyer's hat back on for a sec, although it's been on this whole time, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, there there are hate speech provisions in the criminal code of Canada right now. There are other limitations on speech that are considered crimes. Promoting genocide, for example, is a crime under the criminal code of Canada. And you, if you do that on social media, that's a crime. So, you know, already, you know, and there are, you know, there are very famous cases about uh, hate speech in Canada. I know Ernst Sandel comes to mind and there's a few others, you know, that that have sort of established what it means to violate those hate speech laws and those promoting genocide laws that are currently in the criminal code. So, you know, we can extrapolate those to social media at least so that's something um you know the the what was proposed in parliament uh earlier was way too vague and would have had constitutional problems um certainly uh but with the election called you know that 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 law is off the table now anyway um but that's a bigger issue but anyway, my, you know, my point being is that already in Canada, we have decided that certain speech is illegal. It violates the criminal code. So whether that happens offline or online on a social media, um, it doesn't really matter. And you know what? You're right. Ernst Zundel, and for, there is speech that is criminal, but it didn't seem like what they were talking about in Parliament was always criminal speech. It was something that was, 
you know, we don't want those things that maybe are in more in the gray area. And again, you start getting, as I say, I, I look at Twitter and I think if they can't figure out how to apply their own laws consistently, what chance do we have if it's a bunch of bureaucrats doing this for oh, a whole absolutely. country now? Oh, absolutely. And I, I agree with you on that point 100%. I mean, there's, there's no question. And, you know, what was being proposed was so vague and so, you know, extended into the gray areas. Um, you know, like I said earlier, it never would have passed constitutional muster, in my opinion. So, you know, that's uh, it's probably it's dead in the water anyway. Um, but we'll see what future what future governments, uh, you know, may choose or not choose to do in that area. I'm pretty sure that somewhere Donald Trump is screaming at a wall or something that the Ayatollah can call for the destruction of Israel and tweet away. But he, he's not allowed to. This has got to be killing him. But nonetheless, it's uh, it does explain the contrarianness, contrarian nature of this whole thing, I guess. Yeah, there's uh, so many this, you know, the modern technological age here in the 21st century is fraught with all sorts of uh, issues and difficulties. Alan Mendelson, we love having you on here anytime we can get you. Thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure as always, Scott. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So I had a reminder of something from my past the other day, probably from your past as well. It was a story that I saw that pointed out that it has been 25 years ago this week that consumers distributing died. Remember consumers distributing? You probably do. If you're of if you're of an age of a certain vintage, you I'm sure know about consumers distributing. You would walk into a store, they had some stuff out on display, but you would look in a catalog, find what you like, write the number that corresponded with the product on a piece of paper, hand it to an employee, and then like magic, it would appear from the back, from the warehouse area behind the doors a few moments later. Remember? Of course. I, I can't believe, quite honestly, it's been 25 years, although I have not thought nonstop about consumers distributing, to be fair. But still, 25 years. Boy, it seems like that's time that has flown. Um, the, the man who wrote the piece that got my um, memories flowing, uh, his name is Craig Patterson. He's the editor-in-chief of Retail Insider, who joins us now. Craig, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. It's like, I got to tell you, it's like you put me in a time machine with that one, going back to the days of consumers distributing. It's just, it's one of those things for those of us who are probably children of the 80s, that it's just, it's part of our, it's part of the story. It's part of the retail story of our life, the shopping story of our life. Absolutely. I'll be 45 next month. And I remember consumers distributing fondly with, uh, it was, I don't know, with little pencils or pens that we used to use. I get that confused with Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, it was, and, and the, the thing about it was, I mean, it's obviously a franchise, but everybody, it was the same everywhere, it seemed. And it was really, um, I was thinking about this when I was reading the piece and, and this was Amazon before Amazon, right? This was, I mean, the same kind of thing. You fill out a form, you send it in and your product arrives. It was, it was the pre-technology Amazon. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I wrote the article as well was I was thinking, well, geez, you know, if consumers distributing had survived, it could have been Amazon. Uh, yeah. You know, we've, we've said this about Eden's and its catalog and Sears and, you know, a few other retailers as well over the years. But, yeah, consumers distributing was a really interesting business model while it was around. And it, it is a bit of a shame that it's gone. Yeah. I, the, it was a Canadian company, right? Originally? That's right. That's right. Yeah, they had and, stores in the United States. But, yeah, it was founded in Toronto. And those, the, those owners, the owner of those owners, I mean, you're right. They could have been Jeff Bezos if the timing had just been a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
it, you know, I, I I don't know if I want to be sitting talking to them. They may be really sour right now <laughs> when they look at Bezos flying off into space and they go, ah, ten years later, where they were him. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, <laughs> why didn't it survive? Why do you think? Because it was again, it, it was one of those companies that everybody knew about, and everybody at one time or another seemed to go in there. Why didn't it work? Well, I think I think it was the strength of Zellers at the time, and I think it was the entry of Walmart into Canada because Walmart came in a couple of years before, and you know was really bent on low prices and and you know supplying a lot of product to consumers. I, I think that those were the two main. Uh, reasons why consumers distributing struggled and of course i mean i don't have all the information around the financials of consumers distributing when we do see a retailer go under quite often it's for reasons that you know they weren't able to get their finances under control they may have expanded too quickly costs may have gone up faster than revenue you know there's all kinds of you know reasons why but um you know the retailer i guess kind of had his time and wasn't able to you know meet the competition that was that was coming up and uh, uh you know that probably would have been the case as TGX eventually bought winners and uh, you know expanded that brand as well and it's you know one of the constants in retail is change and competition I would say I think of it fondly um, but is it when you talk about consumers with people is it something that is universally beloved or do people sort of roll their eyes sometimes when they think about it uh, you know, it really depends. I spoke to a few people casually about it as I was writing the article. I was writing it on a Sunday evening just because I was relaxed and I found out that it had closed 25 years ago. And I thought some of the interesting feedback was the fact that sometimes products weren't in stock. I, I guess the supply chain was a little bit of an issue here and there. I mean, maybe that speaks to the popularity of the retailer, but uh, I remember us having to go back to the store to pick up stuff because it wasn't in the store. At that time, I was in Edmonton. Uh, this would have been around uh, 1994 or so. And, uh, you know, you'd have to go back because they didn't have the stuff in the stock. I think that was one of the big challenges. But overall, I think as a retailer, people were very keen to shop there. So, uh, you know, consumers distributing certainly had a brand affinity. And part of me wonders if it could come back in a different form. Now, it already mm. is back in terms of, uh, just for fun, I entered consumersdistributing.com uh, into my web browser, and there is a consumers distributing that is operating currently with the Canadian and American offices. But I, I'm not sure to what degree or how extensive that business is, and they certainly don't have the physical stores like they used to. I can't recall back then, was the stuff that they sold quality or was it generally kind of junky stuff was it cheap stuff I, I don't remember now honestly i think it was a mix i mean they would have had some brand names say in the area of electronics which electronics has really you know moved to e-commerce but uh, i think it depends it was funny i talked to my mom about the article on sunday night and she says oh yeah or they still have i mean we have different technology but you know recently she had a landline with an answering machine and like yeah that thing's from consumers distributing that's how old it was so it lasted that long so some of the quality must have been okay because you know consumer well consumers should have been closed 25 years ago and we probably got that 27 years ago <laughs> as a student so you know clearly some of the stuff there could last you know more than a quarter of a century which is pretty impressive for anything these days I'll tell you what has lasted. If you go on Kijiji, because I did this today, if you go on Kijiji, the old catalogs are now collector's items. People are selling them for, for good money now. If you want to, if that's your thing, if you want to have a, a consumer's distributing catalog, you can find one. Don't know what you'd use it for, but you can find one. Now, some people collect them, even libraries. I, I've seen the Eaton's catalogs and a few others, you know, Simpsons, Sears, et cetera. You know, they, 
people might collect them. It's a bit of a nostalgia thing, just like, you know, I don't know if you can say hockey cards are nostalgia. That's also a commodity, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's history in paper format in this case. Well, you're speaking to someone who was a model back in 1978 for the Simpsons catalog for the Tonka Toy collection one winter. So I'm hoping that one's a collector's item. But um, (laughs) other than that, I I can't speak to any of the other ones. It's a collector's item in this house, I'll tell you, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) You got me thinking, though, as as I was reading this, and it was a great article, and I would encourage people to go look it up, and we'll give the where they can find it at the end. Um, But again, really sort of a throwback. But it got me thinking of... The other companies from, again, back in your youth that were so huge once upon a time that are no longer with us. And I'll tell you, the first, after Consumers Distributing, the first one that came to mind for me was the Columbia House Record or Columbia House Tape or whatever it was, collection (laughs) company. I don't even know what the proper wording was, but that thing was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that and, I mean, Blockbuster Video. Um, Columbia House was huge. I mean, what was it? You'd order what, 500 CDs for a dollar? No, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it, was, you know, it seemed like, uh, you know, they were working in volume. I, I actually, um, part of my high school was in a boarding school, and the kids used to just have mailboxes and would, you know, get the cheap ones and then never have to pay a lot of money for the others, but which probably helped put the company under eventually. <laughs> but, but well, yeah, I mean, except that, that once you signed up, you could never get out from under it. I mean, you were sort of locked in. You, you, we didn't have the internet where you could just go on and click something to say cancel. Like it was almost impossible to untangle yourself once you were in. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that—that's smart in some ways for the business model in terms of you know you, people can't get out of it. You're going to get their money, but uh, you know as, as a long-term strategy, I don't think that's going to work. I mean. One of the things that we've seen with retail is, is you know, technology has transformed retail. And, and you know, the Internet, I think, was one of the biggest uh, uh, transformational, you know, causes causes for things, you know, to change. I mean, Columbia House, I think, there was it a catalog that came out? I don't actually remember. I wasn't as big into that one, but... Uh, it was like a fold-out brochure, and the pictures of the cassettes that you could buy were, like, the size of your baby fingernail, and there were hundreds of them, and you would check off, like, 11 at first for free, but then you had to buy, you know, they would send you one every week or one every two weeks or something for the price that they had agreed. And it was like way more expensive than I think than the record store if you went there. So, I mean, they got you in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious uh, to, to learn more about the demise of that business. Cause that, that's, uh, that was another iconic one. I mean, you're right. It is interesting to go back in the history books and say, well, geez, you know, there's a lot of businesses that we used to frequent that aren't there. I was just, again, reading an article. One of my employees were, used to work for Blockbuster Video. And, and you know, that, that retailer was huge. Uh, you go in the store and, and get your video. And now I think there's about zero. I mean, there, there might be one that's an Airbnb or something that may exist. But there's mm-hmm. hardly, you know, in the United States, they're gone, basically. It's, it is shocking. You know, we got other retailers. You know, Sears is gone. Eaton's is gone. Ontario here, Simpsons is long gone. That was more of an upscale store. Western Canada, where I'm from, we had Woodward's and, and you know, it's, it's Hudson Bay Company is the only major department store left in Canada. It, it's interesting to see. I mean, retail has changed. It's not gone, but, but certainly the industry has uh, uh, transformed. And uh, I, I do miss some of the old stuff that used to be around. I, and I think the Blockbuster thing, you're absolutely right. I think there's one left in Alaska. I watched a documentary on the last one. I don't know what it was on Amazon Prime or Netflix or something, but... Um, I think it's about 15 years away because everyone right now who's at even probably 20 still remembers Blockbuster. So it's so fresh that it's not like, oh, whatever happened to them? But you're right. In 15 years, we're all going to be having this conversation about, I can't believe it's 25 years since Blockbuster closed up. 
The other one, though, that really came to mind when I read your piece, and, and again, there's lots, and you've cited more than I've even thought of, but they're all good. The other one that really came to mind that was so unique at the time it existed and so unlike anything else was the last minute club. The last mm. for travel, the last minute club that you could call up a number. And there was no computers. You would call up a number and you'd say, what do you got going to Florida tomorrow with a package? And there'd be someone there who would hook you up and get you a flight and everything else. No longer. I, well, actually, that's not true. They, there is a last minute club that exists, but kind of like what you just said with the other one, it's, it, I don't know how it exists or in what form, but it's, it's, it's also a relic. Yeah, yeah. God, that would really come in handy, wouldn't it? I mean, I guess we have Expedia and a few other websites like that, but uh, it is a little bit different. I'm a bit afraid of those websites because you're booking through a third party. I, I had a person at a hotel desk in New York City scold me for booking through Expedia because I didn't book through the hotel. And that was the last time I used it. Maybe I shouldn't say it on air, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, New York City, people are a little direct or rude, depending how you look at it. And, uh, you know, she was like, well, you booked this through Expedia, so therefore, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, oh, I didn't realize that. I, I didn't even understand the business model at the time. So, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, one minute. Yeah. It is remarkable as we talk about these that there is one common denominator in all of the ones that we're talking about consumers and blockbuster and last minute club and whatever else the internet seems to be the common denominator that is the downfall of all of these old bricks and mortar places that's right that's right and uh, you know we always have disruptors you know every every couple decades or less and i'm wondering if artificial intelligence is going to be the next one i just don't know where that would go i'm not an expert in that area at all but i I do talk to companies that are involved in technology and they're saying this is going to be the next big wave where it'll be integrated into everything in our lives from retail to healthcare to turning on the lights you know it's interesting to see where things are going because over over you know hundreds of years we've seen an event i mean the invention of the wheel that was a very long time ago the invention of the automobile you know the invention of the airplane the invention of the internet and and, you know, it's, I guess the one constant again in the world is, is fairly constant change. And uh, at the pandemic here that we're in, uh, they're saying has uh, accelerated the pace of change, certainly in this digital transformation that we're seeing in retail and otherwise just in society. It moved us somewhere between five and 10 years into the future. So we're almost living in a 2030 type of situation at this point in terms of some of the technology and the adoption of uh, technologies that we otherwise wouldn't have had if not for this COVID-19 pandemic. So, Craig, you wrote this about about consumers distributing, and again, that got me going on this. And I bet you've had a ton of feedback from people like me who, you know, remember that, and it's sort of a a, a flashback, a warm flashback moment. Whether their stuff was good or not, as I say, I can't remember. But I wonder why, because clearly, you know, like the the internet has made everything so much easier for us. I, I'm sh- going to consumers distributing was a bit of a pain sometimes. You had to find one, and like all you look at it honestly and you say well things are way easier now and probably way better i wonder why we still have these warm fuzzy feelings for these companies i think it's a nostalgia i mean part of consumers distributing was an experience for better or for worse i mean i i think now we're in a situation where you can buy anything online you know everyone's on their cell phones you know looking at things on their phones you know you look at old photos from decades ago people sitting at restaurants were not all on their phones i i think there's always going to be a bit of that nostalgia for the past. And I encounter that all the time with Retail Insider. Uh, You know, sometimes I go back and do historical retrospectives just because I got interested in things and became passionate about it 
the way they were and not how they are. And things are different now. So, so part of it, I think, again, is just us reconnecting with our past and, and, and having that nostalgia and just remembering these things because a lot of what was there isn't there anymore. And, and that is going to impact people, you know, including myself, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking of writing a couple of books about different retailers that don't exist anymore. And, um, you know, part of that is just that nostalgia of like, you know, I, I really enjoyed, you know, going to those places back then and they don't exist anymore. And, and it's kind of a sad feeling, you know, it's like almost like losing a family member to some degree, at least for some people. It is, uh, it's, it's, it's a piece well worth reading, especially if you can recall, if you do remember, I think the, um, around here, there was at least one consumers distributing in the Eastgate mall, if I recall, and there may have been others in town, but, uh, it's, uh, go to retail-insider.com, right? That's the website. That's right. Retail-insider.com. And you can find the piece there. Uh, Craig Patterson wrote it. Craig, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's as I say, it's just a um, the nostalgia. That's probably true. And and you know, blockbuster in time will be that Toys R Us in time will probably be that uh, one other one. Even as we're talking, and I know that there's still some of this product out there. I think I've seen it at Costco. But once upon a time, going to the pop shop was just such a treat. Going into the pop and. I think they still make it. I think it's you can still buy it, but it's not the same. It's not like going to the pop shop and all the stuff. That it's it, it's a, it's a different, you know. The online shopping and everything is fun. It's great. It's exciting. It's 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 very convenient, especially during the pandemic. It's been a lifesaver. Let's say. I mean, honestly, but there is something with all these places that um, you know that you kind of miss. I do anyway. I. I, I and I don't think about it all the time, but then you read a story about consumers distributing and you do have this flashback and you go, yeah, you know what? That was, that was a cool thing once upon a time, back when we were more technologically innocent, I guess. And this was the pre-Amazon because it really is. It is, you used to buy this. It worked there the same way Amazon or any online thing is right now. You just enter a code, you hand your money and boom, the product appears. It was, it was magic. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.